Hi, I'm Raghu. I founded Upstocks, and after Upstocks, I founded Rain Platforms. Raghu Kumar is one of the most unique founders we have featured on our show. He and his brother Ravi grew up and got educated in the US and converted a $10,000 investment into $2 million through algorithmic trading in just 2 years. Then they took the contrarian decision to move to India to trade in the Indian equity markets and this led to the birth of RKSV which today is better known as Upstocks. Upstocks became a unicorn in 2021 and is one of the leading trading platforms in India having raised more than 200 million dollars till date. This is the first part of Akshay Dat's conversation with Raku Kumar. And in this episode, they talk about Raku's journey from making phenomenal wealth through trading and the journey of building up stocks in a highly competitive market. Listen on, and if you like such insightful conversations with disruptive startup founders, then do subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app. In college, I basically got introduced to trading, and so. One of the first things I did after graduating was I started trading my own money, and then using the money that me and my brother made, we moved to India in 2000. So basically, what happened here was in 2006, right? That's when I started trading with my own money, and I stumbled into some amazing strategies. Right? These were basically strategies involving the foreign exchange markets, and specifically. What we were doing was we were taking advantage of news events, right? So, for example, in the U.S., every Friday, the U.S. NFP numbers are announced. So, this is the employment figures, right? And based on those employment figures, the U.S. dollar goes up or down like immediately within seconds, right? So, if you have access to that information very quickly and you have access to the right brokers, you can place these trades and make a lot of money. So, what we did from 2006 through 2008 was we basically just ran this one strategy. It's called news trading, and back then we were one of the first people to stumble into that whole strategy, right? So, there's there was an element of luck, obviously, but also we were looking for these types of strategies, so we discovered them by 2008. The competition caught up to us, and it basically became like impossible to make money at the retail level. Like you had to be basically like like a Citadel or one of the big hedge funds or prop funds. And so we packed up our bags, and we so during that time in 2008, I started researching India's capital markets, and what I realized was similar types of strategies could actually be run in India, right? So our first reason to move to to move to India was actually not for up stocks. It was actually to start trading in India. So from 2008 all the way through 2015, we actually actively traded the Indian markets. And in that process, while we were in India, we obtained a brokerage license and we decided to set up a retail shop as well. So trading has always been very close to me, basically. Yeah. This strategy which you found in 2006, why did it exist? Was there some sort of market inefficiency some information asymmetry because of which that strategy existed yeah so the strategy always existed it's just that the information wasn't available at the retail level 
And it's the type of strategy that's not infinitely scalable. So if you think about it, when you trade through a broker, there is a certain amount of liquidity available, okay? And when it comes to foreign exchange, the brokers themselves are the market makers, right? It's not like when you trade through a regular retail brokerage where the broker is just offloading the liquidity available on the exchange. On a spot foreign exchange broker, many of these brokers are the market makers. They're taking the other mm -hmm. side. Right. Yeah, so it's like so a what crypto exchange in a way. Like most crypto exchanges are also providers of liquidity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So when the broker itself takes the other side of the trade, then what happens during these news events is that the broker also has a mandate to provide liquidity. But what they do is they don't provide a lot of liquidity. Right. So during that news event, for example, let's say the Federal uh, Reserve is announcing an interest rate decision, right? That time, right? Those few seconds before and after the announcement, you'll notice a lot on a lot of these brokers, there's very wide bid ask spreads and there's very little liquidity, right? So there wasn't much money to be made, but also what happened during that time was these news announcements were being released to the retail public like very quickly. So basically before 2006, you would have to have access to Bloomberg or some crazy high-end terminal to get access to that information. But at the retail level, what was happening was a lot of mom and pop shops and basically people just operating their own businesses, they were releasing this information on the internet, right? So a lot of the retail public jumped on and it created this massive wave. And then what happened was because so many people were acting, acting upon the news, that in itself led to a lot of price movement. Okay. So you're in Japan, right? So in Japan, what happens is when a lot of these news events are released, they're already factored into the prices. So you'll notice that, for example, the yen will not move real time to a lot of these news announcements, right? Because what happens is a lot of these new news announcements, unfortunately, are leaked to the, the journalists or whatnot, right? In advance. But in the US, that was not the case. Long story short, basically, a retail trader was able to make a killing. And those were like crazy years from 2000, 2005 through 2008. News trading was this crazy phenomenon. In fact, there is a famous book called Flash Crash, right? By Michael Connolly, where he talks about this phenomenon in that book. So yeah, those are really good years to be a automated algorithmic trader. Yeah, I'm going to ask what probably sounds like a silly question, but how do you make money in Forex trading? What is Forex trading? <laughs> okay, yeah. No, that's actually a really good question. So the foreign exchange markets are actually the most liquid market in the world. Okay, so in terms of number of transactions done, terms of just a nominal amount of gross turnover, nothing compares to foreign exchange because everyone trades foreign exchange, right? Businesses trade it to hedge against risk. And then you have retail traders, institutionals. So the whole world is trading Forex. Now, what is Forex is nothing more than just the value of the currency, right? So how is the USD, the US dollar calculated? Now, the thing about, the thing about currencies is that everything is relative, right? It's not like the US dollar in itself, it does have value, but we look at the dollar in terms of how it compares to the euro and the pound and other, other currencies. In fact, there's, I think, six or seven major currencies in the world. So what happens is these, these currencies are actually traded live and that determines 
their live price. Now, certain, now certain countries, what they do is they control the, uh, the value of that currency essentially, right? Like China. Um, and exactly. China. And then you can do that in a hard way or in a soft way, right? The government can buy back the currency or there's certain ways you can basically ensure that the currency is not depreciating or appreciating too much, right? So if you're an export-driven economy, then you want to ensure that your currency is not appreciating too much, right, against other currencies. But in the case of the dollar and things like that, yes, the, the U.S. government definitely has an incentive to ensure that the, it doesn't get too out of whack, but generally it's a free market. So that's what these markets do. They basically just dictate the value of the currency. So forex trading would be like, say, buying euros today because you feel that dollar will become more valuable against euros. No, that's not bad. But yeah, so it's the other way around. So what happens is, let's assume that, I don't even know what the euro USD is at right now, but let's assume it's trading at 1.2 or something, right? That means if it's trading at 1.2 and you're looking at the euro USD, that's the number of dollars per euro. And if you think the euro is going to appreciate, then you buy the euro USD. That's all it is, right? And when you're buying the euro USD, you're essentially saying you're bullish on the euro and you are bearish on the dollar. So the way we would trade, it's really fascinating, is in advance exactly which announcements are coming out for each country, right? This is like obviously public information. There's news trading calendars. And a lot of these US releases are done at 8.30 in the morning EST. A lot of the UK announcements happen at 4.30 EST in the morning. And then, so there would be like basically six, seven currencies that you can actually trade and make money on, right? Now, one thing for me was it was just me and my brother. I was the one who was coming up with all the models. He was the one coding them. We would have to stay up for basically all day. It wasn't all day because you're only really staying up for the 20, 30 minutes before the announcement and after the announcement. But these announcements happen like throughout the day. And the currencies that would move would be the pound, would be the dollar. Euro wouldn't move, right? Because euro is not really pegged to one country's activity. It's a euro, right? So euro generally wouldn't move to announcements unless it was the any sort of indicators that were involving the entire eurozone. And then you would have the New Zealand, I forget what it's called, New Zealand Krona, I think, and the Australian dollar and Sweden and Norway, right? Those are the only countries and Canada. Those are the only countries where when certain numbers were released, the currency would move immediately and it would move a massive amount, right? And the great thing about foreign exchange is that you can take on a lot of leverage. So these retail brokers and even prime brokers, they offer sometimes up to 100 to one leverage, right? Which means if you have thousand dollars in your account, you could trade hundred thousand dollars worth of value on that trade. But then you can also lose a lot of money, right? So sometimes we would make hundreds of thousands of dollars in one day, and other times we would lose fifty thousand dollars in one day. So we were able to basically turn something like ten thousand dollars into more than two million dollars in the span of two years. And I've talked about this like on, on other podcasts, but basically it was just a crazy time to be news trading. So yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So what did you identify in India as strategies for trading? Yeah. So the secret sauce comes out. So basically what we did, Akshay, was we did the most basic type of trading, 
which is called arbitrage, right? And speaking about arbitrage, we were talking about SBF earlier. SBF basically... Just Sam, this like SBF is Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam Bankman-Fried of, of, of FTX, right? So they had a sister concern called Alameda Research. And this is all public news now. But Alameda, basically, a lot of the money that they were trying to make was basically based off of arbitrage as well. And in fact, SPF's background came from basic crypto arbitrage, right? So arbitrage is nothing more than when something is being sold in one market for a certain price and then another market for a different price, but the same good is being sold, right? Then you can basically buy on one market and sell on the other market. Pretty simple stuff, right? Now in India, a lot of these companies are cross-listed between the NSE and the BSE, right? So if you look at Reliance Industries, it's listed on the NSE and on the BSE. It's the same exact company, right? Except it's a different exchange. Now, one unique thing about India is that you don't have interoperability, which basically means you cannot buy on one exchange and then the same day sell on the other. Because for whatever reason, the exchanges don't really recognize each other. Okay, that's a decision for different matters. But for whatever reason, that's how it is in India. And in, in the U.S., it's not like that, right? Um, in the U.S., the NYSE and NASDAQ are interoperable. Correct. They recognize each other. Yeah. Which is why you don't even see spreads in the U.S. Now, keep in mind, this was 15 years ago, right? Or 14 years ago. But back then, you would notice a massive difference in price between the BSE and NSE. Okay. Because so liquidity, like one market was more liquid than the other. Liquidity, but it's not just liquidity. There would actually be not many logical reasons, right? Sometimes symbols would be trading at a discount on the BSE and at other times, other securities would be trading at a discount on the NSE, right? It happened all the time. And this is something I actually tried to figure out. It's like, why is this happening? It just happened. It's almost like each market is independent, right? It's obviously, but there is a dependency, obviously, but so that the trick then became, how do you find these opportunities and take advantage of them? And then that became like a big puzzle because the two exchanges don't recognize each other, right? But oftentimes what would happen is the prices would collapse, right? They wouldn't collapse hundred percent, but they would collapse enough to make a profit. So for example, but by collapse, you mean the difference between them would collapse. Exactly. But it wouldn't collapse to zero oftentimes. So let's say, for example, a stock is trading at 100 on the BSE and 105 on the NSE, right? And we see this price difference in the morning. By the afternoon, right before the markets close, that price difference might go to, let's say, two rupees versus five, right? So you're capturing a three rupee profit. And then you have to make sure that three rupee profit captures or covers your transaction costs and STT and things like that, right? So very precise and everything was done algorithmically in a fully automated manner, but we were trading essentially every security on both exchanges, right? But throughout the day. You need to decide which price is a truer reflection, right? And then not, yeah, not really, that. right? Because you don't necessarily care what's the true price, as long as you can make a calculated on the prices collapsing. Right. So everything came down to probabilities. You don't really care because I don't know what the true price of, let's say it's the Reliance Industries. I don't know if Reliance should be trading at 100 or 95 or 200 or 1000, right? That's a totally different matter. But 
if something's trading at 100 on one exchange, 105 on the, on the other exchange, then chances are the real price is probably somewhere in between, right? Like the true market perceived value is probably something in between, right? And so we would start basically employing the strategy. This is the first strategy that we used. And then we basically developed a cash future strategy, which is very common. In India, have a lot of, they're called jobbers, right? Essentially what they do is they, you might've seen them, they basically trade all day in front of a computer terminal. And oftentimes they do it manually, but they're basically trying to capture the price difference between the cash in the future. So cash is basically equity, right? So equity in the future. And what happens is usually the future price is at a premium compared to the equity price, but that also collapses as the month goes through. So that was another strategy. And then we got into commodities so, trading. A future would be um, like, say, yeah. uh, an instrument which says that I will sell the dying stock to you at 105 rupees after 30 days. That would be a future. Exactly. Right. So in India, you have a very liquid derivatives market, including futures and options, obviously. And so the future is essentially what is the future price of this product or symbol on a given expiry day. And then you're trading that value essentially. Right. So yeah. So in India, you have a, you have an active liquid futures market as well. And obviously you have Nifty and Bank Nifty futures. And very, a, very liquid. A, a future can be either a promise to buy or a promise to sell at a certain price after the X number of days. It's yeah, the technical definition, I'm not so certain about, but essentially what you're, what it is, you're trading the future value of that product, right? So when I'm, when I go to a commodities exchange and I'm trading, let's say MCX or crude oil futures, that's essentially what is the price going to be on this given day in the future. And what happens on that day is obviously the live price and the futures price will be the same at the expiry time, right? So that's essentially what you're trading. Yeah. So it, it was really fascinating. And our advantage actually wasn't really the models, right? It was actually the technology because what we were doing was we were trading in a fully automated algorithmic manner. So there was no human intervention. And we were one of the first in India actually to employ what's called direct market access, right? So we got basically access to those prices directly in a fully automated algorithmic manner because the exchanges had just opened it up, right? So both the BSE and the NSE had opened it up to the retail public. I think looking back, we obviously, there's always an element of luck, right? But those were relatively smooth times. And the good thing for us with Upstocks, back then Upstocks was known as RKSV. Mm. The good thing for RKSV was that we had this- Your initials here. Yes. Yeah. So RK is basically my initials and my brother's initials. His name is Ravi. So Raghu Kumar, Ravi Kumar. And then the third co-founder is Srini Vishwanath, RKSV. But RK, so, you know, one good thing we had going for us was that the prop desk was doing very well. And so the retail offering, which we launched in 2012, we didn't have to get so caught up on being profitable in terms of just the retail offering because we had the prop desk, which was bankrolling a lot of the company's operations. And I was essentially responsible for the prop desk. So that was like my, on a given day, I would say 90% of my work went towards the prop desk and 10% went into operations mm -hmm. of the company. Okay. You were, this was only your own money that does trading on, or did you also 
take money from clients and trading for them also? No, it was, so the kind of evolution was from 2006 through 2008, it was just our collective money, mine, my brother's. And then we took that money, we went to India, we obtained a brokerage license and everything basically became company money. And then within the company, we had the retail division and we had the prop division, but it was still one company. And what happened was when we raised external funding, that's when we shut down the prop book because now you don't want to co-mingle different things. Basically, you want to avoid what SPF was doing. So we had foresight. You don't want to co-mingle investor funds and activities that are not true to the core business of or the core functions of the company. The core functions of Upstocks is it's a retail stock brokerage. The prop desk was still making money when we raised funding, but we shut it down. That was in 2016. Okay. Why did you got a brokerage license in 2008 only? Why did you need a brokerage license? Because you wanted to trade initially, right? Yeah. So the reason we obtained a brokerage license was for two different reasons. Number one, we knew that we would need a brokerage license eventually, because one thing we did want to do was set up shop as a retail stock brokerage, because we had a very strong thesis that this was something that was going to do very well in India, right? In terms of offering a discount stock brokerage offering. But the second reason was when you trade through your own brokerage license, then you save on a lot of costs because otherwise you need to trade through another broker's license and they're going to charge brokerage, right? So to avoid that, what we did is we obtained our own brokerage license and we basically did away with, with those unnecessary costs. And if you're doing something like arbitrage trading, you absolutely require your own broker's license. Otherwise, you're not going to make money. Okay, interesting. But yeah. it's possible to do algorithmic trading trading, or at least at that time, was it possible to do algo trading through another broker? Were there platforms that allowed you to upload your algorithm and trade on it? Yeah, not like it is today. So now in 2022, you can basically code your own algorithm you can very quickly open up a retail API brokerage, a brokerage account and open up the API, code your own algorithm, and no one's going to ask any questions, really. Back then, it was very difficult. You essentially had to get your algorithms approved by the exchange, right, for the most part, or you would need to ensure that you were abiding by certain risk management protocols. And we were doing it at the broker level. The retail public could not build their own algos. It basically wasn't open to the retail public, but that changed. So we were actually at the forefront of that. This is something one of my co-founders was very bullish on, which was essentially allowing users to build their own algos and trade off of them. And then other brokers followed suit, right? So now most brokers in India have opened up their APIs and that's relatively seamless now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Tell me the retail journey. Now, I understand the prop desk journey and prop desk for people who don't understand is basically your trading arm is called the prop desk. So tell me the retail journey. Yeah. So retail journey basically was, again, it's always like an evolution. The idea started because my brother basically was, while we were in Chicago, he was working for a company called Thinkorswim. And you may or may not have heard of Thinkorswim. Thinkorswim is now known as TD Ameritrade. But 
basically in the late 2000s and for the next 10 years, Thinkorswim was the number one options trading brokerage and platform in the US, right? So all the hardcore traders would go to Thinkorswim. And yet my brother had that foresight of knowing that something like a Thinkorswim, maybe with more discounted pricing, but with a very good technology-driven product offering could do well in India, right? So he basically had that vision, I guess you could say, of saying, hey, in the next, it might take some time, it might take five years, it might take 10 years, but these types of offerings will do well in the US or in India, right? And you had other stock brokerages which were basically doing that in the US. You had Scott Trade, you had E-Trade, obviously. You had, uh, you had other discount stock brokerages. This is obviously before Robinhood. So, and so the concept existed, right? And that was the idea. And then we moved to India. And one good thing that we did was we didn't rush into just launching something, right? We spent more than two years in India just sitting on the sidelines. It also took us a long time to obtain our brokerage licenses. And one reason for that is because we're NRIs and we, liter we literally had to go through more hoops, but which is fine. That's just how it is. And, but by the end of 2011 is when we decided, okay, let's do this. Because obviously by then another brokerage had started, another discount stock brokerage, and we saw what they were doing well and maybe some ways to compete with them. And that's, and we basically launched the retail offering in early 2012. You right. launched it as AppStocks or Leo? As RKSV. And one decision we had to make back then was pricing, right? Because again, there was another brokerage which had launched a 20 rupee plan, which I'm sure you're aware of who that is. And because of them, we were like, okay, do we also launch a 20 rupee pricing plan? Or should we launch something? What, what is this 20 rupee pricing plan? Like, Yeah, so 20 rupees is basically what all the discount stockbrokers charge now in India, right? So up stocks, zero like top. 20 rupees um, for what? For like per trade? Per order, per trade, basically. Yeah. But so, I sell either 20 rupees for that. Exactly. So whether you're trading equities, futures, options, which is a very revolutionary concept because before this concept existed, Brokerage basically was very similar to how brokerage happens in the real estate markets, right? Which is, it's a percentage of the volume. But when you think about the cost of doing that business, like from the business perspective, right? There is no increased cost because the order goes to the terminal and it doesn't matter whether it's one share or like 10,000 shares, the same exact thing is happening. So it's just an archaic way of looking at things, right? So that got disrupted. So we had to disrupt another way. So what we launched was, is pretty, pretty unique, actually. It was a monthly plan where you pay a fixed monthly fee and you can trade as much as you want. So we charged 1947, the idea being you're free to do as much trading as you want. And in tandem, we also had a per order plan as well, right? So users could come in and they could pick, like the power traders would pick the 1947 plan. And I think that's really important, right? Like even for the listeners, I think you have to find something which almost becomes like a no-brainer for the customer, right? So in our case, it was 
the power traders, people who were trading essentially more than, what is it? More than 100 trades per month, right? That's the math. If you're doing more than 100 trades per month, then 1947, yeah, it makes sense, right? And then oftentimes because of that, because you're in that plan, it gives you the liberty of experimenting new strategies and things like that, right? So that's what's one thing we did. And then we basically had a legacy product, which, so essentially our product was a white label solution. It wasn't really something super innovative or anything. That would this take another- like a, From an Indian vendor, there was an Indian vendor yes. who offered something off the shelf. Exactly, right? So that vendor is called Omnisys and they're very well known within the trading community. So we were using a white label solution offered by Omnisys and most brokers back then were doing the same, even now, right? A lot of brokers are using some form of Omnisys powered trading platforms and it did a fantastic job, right? It's literally a white label solution. You would log in and you would see the RKSV logo, but then from a front end perspective, there'd be no difference between us and like most other brokers, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that uh, process, yeah. Take care of the pipes to the exchange and the compliances and all the rules and everything you take care of. Like it was a full stack solution. It was a full stack solution and they would offer different types of services. They would also offer back office support. They would handle the order execution, risk management, right? Because what happens with trading is that the exchange has its own RMS systems, risk management systems, but then the brokers are also tasked with having their own RMS systems, right? And if you're starting out, you don't have the capability of doing that yourself. And so you basically leverage that through the vendor, which is what we did. And basically around the time we raised our series A is when we decided to essentially build our own offering. Right. So that's when Upstocks Pro launched. And essentially a lot of the funds that we raised was used towards building the product out. And like, uh, what was your first fundraise like? Like, when did you raise it? And was it, uh, was it a difficult raise? Was it a relatively easy raise? Yeah. So first raise was in 2016. We okay. raised. So about, um, you've been running RKSV for four years by now, like the, the retail offering. The retail offering was running for about four years. Yeah. And what trading quickly, volume? Yeah. What's the right metric to evaluate a brokerage by? Like trading volume or? Yeah, trading volume. You could look at number of users. You could look at, yeah, probably those two metrics. Volume. What were those There's, metrics for you when you did your first raise? So around that time, I believe we're doing something like 100,000 orders per day. Yeah. So those numbers really start to scale up over time. One big reason for that success though, is obviously the company's operations are super important, right? But when it comes to stockbroking, trust is one of those things that is just paramount and trust takes time to build, right? You can't buy trust. You can try, but you're probably not going to do very well. So it took time. It took time for our users and the market to understand how the company was positioned and things like that. And then we went through the series A and then using the funds from the series A, we basically built out, we built out Upstocks Pro. Yeah, okay, okay. I want to ask you a couple of questions at this point, like the pre-2016 part of it, then we'll go from 2016 onwards. How did you, what was your go-to market? Like 100,000 orders a day means you must have had a lot of active users. How did you do that user acquisition? What channels worked for you? Yeah. So 
One thing we implemented pretty early on was a very simple referral model where basically whenever anyone referred anybody, a certain percentage of the brokerage fees paid towards the broker would go to the refer. And that became like an inbuilt thing. Like the experiment. Like first? No, through the, so for whatever volume that's generated, right? So let's say I refer you and then you start trading. Whenever you trade, whatever brokerage fees you're paying the company, a percentage of that goes to me. For life. For life, for life. Yeah. And then we would have different types of partner programs, right? So partners can include like websites, affiliate websites, or different types of authorized persons or influencers, which came up later on. So anyone who has their own referral code and is doing this in a mass, mass way, you basically create a different type of incentive plan for them. And but that's like one aspect. Similar lines, yeah. like you would share a percentage of revenue with them. Yes, okay. exactly. You can also sometimes share account opening fees and things like that. And then one thing we did was we experimented a lot. So we actually experimented with paid ads, right? So for example, Google ads and things like that, right? We would actually experiment with all those things. And this is something some of our competitors did not do. And we actually looked at that as an advantage, right? Because everything there comes down to the unit economics and basically recovering that cost of acquiring a customer, right? It's basically LTV, CSE, you do that math, and then you look at the quality of that customer, and then you basically just work backwards and you scale that activity if it works, right? So that's something we did. And then a large part of it was actually just word of mouth, right? Because what happens in these types of niche kind of spaces where a company is doing something and there aren't too many other companies doing that same activity is that the company itself starts developing a certain identity, right? So people looked at us a little differently than the way they looked at our competitors. Competitors had certain spokespeople speaking on their behalf and we had us, right? And these things mattered, right? Because people would see us in the news, in the media, and the company develops like like an identity, like a personality, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and your users feel that because whether it's they're seeing one of the co-founders on TV giving an interview or they're reading something about the company or the marketing, right? Let's say I'm sending an email blast to all the users they see the way the messaging is coming through and that builds that brand. Like there's a certain, certain things come to mind when we think of Tesla, right? We think of Elon Musk or we think of, we think of the way, just the general feel that you have in a Tesla car. Similarly, Facebook, like every company, Google, right? Google, Apple, Google, Apple is actually a good example, right? You think of Apple, there's a certain feel that kind of we have, right? With Apple and then Google has this whole thing of, oh, we do good and we also always stand by good, doing good. So similarly, these things matter, right? And one big thing that we always tried to cultivate was knowing that voice and then doubling down on it and making sure that all the communication reflected that voice, right? And even now with rain, this is something that we're now starting to really think about actively. I'm sure we're going to talk about that later, especially in those early stages, as you're about to launch a product, developing that voice and then cultivating it over time Mm. is really important. Mm. What are the components? uh in the business of running a brokerage firm, like you spoke about risk management, back office, can you just spend a minute on each of these, help me understand what they are? Yeah. So before I talk about that, one thing we had going for us was that 
we had three co-founders and it was never like one person doing everything, right? Sometimes that happens in other companies. So we were fortunate in that sense. So what I would focus on really for the most part was running the prop desk. But apart from that, you have customer support. It is something I basically spent a lot of time on thinking about and building that up from scratch, right? Going from one agent to hundreds of agents, scaling it, making sure all the agents knew exactly what we stood for. At the same time, making sure that the deliverables were being met, right? It's very important. So customer service is there. You have obviously the product itself, right? Making sure you're... So in our case, it was a legacy product, but even there, there were certain things that you can do with a white labeled product to stand out from the competition. Then you have just general risk management, right? So brokerage, a brokerage is basically dealing with regulators, obviously making sure that you're always compliant and abiding by the regulatory bodies and making sure you're not doing something you're not, you're not supposed to be doing. From a compliance standpoint, there's always new compliance issues being released, right? You have to make sure that, so whether that means how you onboard a customer or whether you're verifying the customer, how are you verifying them? Because one issue that we faced before we launched Iadhar was that it took a lot of time for customers to essentially open up an account, right? The old school way of opening up an account was that you would need to fill out like almost like 20 to 30 pages of paper, right? There's no online account account opening form. And then you would have to verify yourself. And that required basically someone visiting you and verifying you in person is literally called in-person verification, IPV. And then a lot of things can go wrong in that whole process. And then we basically lobbied for allowing IPV to happen over the webcam, right? So actually, our KSV was actually one of the first brokers to do that. And then eventually, I think around 2016, 17, Iadhar kind of changed everything because now you can basically just verify yourself through your Adhar, right? And then online account opening became much more simple. But yeah, compliance is a big thing. Just regulators, right? Because SEBI generally does an amazing job, right? They're actually probably, in my opinion, especially after you see everything that's happened with FTX and all that, the regulators in India are probably second to none in the world. But that's a double-edged sword, right? Because now you're also dealing with a lot of regulations all the time. And some, sometimes you wouldn't know exactly what was actually like a regulation you had to actually abide by versus something which was perhaps being talked about, but not actually passed, right? Things like STT, right? STT was always a big issue and it still is an issue, yes, right? Capital gain tax, STT. Exactly, right? Securities transaction tax, right? So you have very relatively high STT rates. India has, it has a high STT rate, whether it's on a sell side equity transaction or an options trading. So all these things you're thinking about, right? And so one thing you're doing as a business is you're trying to hire the right people who have experience in those aspects. So they're, they become the experts, right? And you lean on them. So especially with things like compliance and things like that, for the most part, me and the other two co-founders, we were not compliance experts, right? But we basically would make sure that the head of compliance in the company knew exactly what to do for different types of situations. So yeah, so other than that, it's just like any other business, really. And what is the back office here? That The customer support is the back office or what's the back office of a brokerage firm? No, so back office is basically the ability for the user to see all the trade reports and activity after the trade happens, right? 
So if I want to basically see my contract notes, which are issued by each exchange every day, how do I do that, right? If I want to get a detailed history of all my trades done, how do I do that, right? So one thing we did was we built our own back office systems, right? Which were independent of some of these third-party systems that existed. So yeah, so back office is a huge component of running a brokerage. Once you raised funds, then what did you do? Did you go about setting up a tech team to build your own product? Yeah. So this is basically 2016, 17. So for me personally, this was my early, the early signs of maybe I should think about doing something else eventually because I was never the kind of person who was super bullish on spending all day running a stock brokerage. It's not something which comes super intuitively to me. I was always the trader. So from 2017 onwards, like yeah. You shut down trading as soon as you raised funds. Yeah, we shut it down or we had to. It was a good decision to make, right? And yeah, one of the major things we did was we built out a tech team, right? So one of my co-founders, he basically led all the tech at Upstocks. So he was responsible for building a team. We basically moved everything in-house, right? We had all the developers report to the office and we built up Upstocks Pro from scratch. And that was a fun exercise because one of the things that Upstocks had, which some of these other brokerages didn't have, was a very good web offering, right? So if you look at Upstocks Pro, essentially you have the mobile offering and then you have the web offering. Um, nowadays, most of the activity is done on mobile but one of the major kind of USPs of Upstocks was the fact that we were able to build like a really stunning web interface, mm. right? And so that actually became one of our, to yeah. A lot of power users who had, who were probably trading on their, this was like their day job to trade. So they would be trading on a, on a web application instead of like trading on the side along with some other day job. Exactly. And there you are still limited because whenever you're doing something on the web versus downloading an EXE, right? The web offering is always going to be, I mean, it's catching up, right? And I'm not a tech expert here, but I know one of the challenges that we faced during those years was how do you actually get an authentic power user to trade on the web, right? Because they're so used to these legacy platforms, like we talked about Omnisys, these are downloadable exe files right these are programs that you're running super so, fast our right? case we yeah. trading platform was also like a downloadable uh, exe file it, it was exactly right so one of the one of the actual early frustrations that we had was we launched up stocks and yet a lot of our users were reluctant to leave the third party offering. And I remember it really frustrated one of my co-founders because he was, what's going on? But that's the thing, because these hardcore traders were so used to dealing with that. And it's not, oh, because they don't know better. It's actually because they were getting a lot of things on that offering, which were not available on the web. So that's a trade-off we had to make over time. Yeah, it's like Excel versus Google Sheets. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I spent a lot of time in Excel. And I, that being said, over time, I have found myself to spend more and more time on Google Sheets. I don't, if I just do that math, like uh, it might be like, if I'm on a desktop, it might be like 50-50, probably skewed towards Google Sheets. 
But if you ask me, let's say maybe three, four years ago, I think I was spending a lot more time in Excel because Google Sheets keeps getting better and better, basically. And we get used to it. That's one of the challenges of launching a product. You think everything is going to do so well, but if you're trying to break a habit or change a habit, you, you can't predict that outcome, right? Because having that ability to really be empathetic and really put yourself in someone else's shoes is very difficult to do mm-hmm. without a sort of bias creeping in. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So, so yeah. Your product differentiation as opposed to, and I guess there were two other major competitors you had by then, would have been that you were focused on people who were trading as a full-time job. So you built your product according to that, like with for power users. So, yeah. So one decision we made, Akshay, was in 2014. Yeah, 2014, we stopped the monthly plan and we only offered the paper trade plan, right? And interestingly, we charged 25 rupees. That was one of the most interesting decisions we've made because it's almost like game theory, right? It's if you charge the same, then there's a pro to that, but there's a con as well. The pro being you're not really giving a reason for someone to not pick you, but the con is you're not really any different. If you charge more, then the pro obviously is slightly higher revenue. But even also from a positioning standpoint, sometimes when you price things a little higher, the perception is that something is better. And we also felt like we were better, right? In a certain way, it's almost it's almost like you're going to everyone and saying, hey, I can do this because I can, and that's it, right? And another reason to price things higher was otherwise everything becomes a race to the bottom. And to avoid that or maybe delay that, we charge 25 rupees, right? And it was called the dream plan, right? Even the naming, right? It wasn't just like a pricing plan. It's called the dream plan. Like this is the dream. Then obviously one question we get asked all the time is like, why would I pay 25 when a competitor is charging 20? But we had very good answers to that. What were those answers? Those answers are basically, we have a better product. We have better customer support. We have a better brand. You you can, and this is not a knock on any other brokerage here. I'm just saying this is actually what we said. We would tell our client because we believed it. We actually believed that our customer support was better, right? Because we had certain metrics, like a certain percentage of all calls were answered within a certain number of seconds. And we were very proud of like certain things that we were doing very well. And so everyone bought into that, right? But in due time, you realize this is not going to really work because at some point in time, especially as companies graduate from startup to not being a startup anymore, then it's, wait, you're not a startup anymore. So you can't use that on me, right? I'm not going (laughs) to feel sorry for you. I'm not going to, you're just another company. You're trying to take my money. What's really special about you? Nothing is really special about you. And so at a certain point in time, we made it 20 rupees and it's been 20 rupees since then. Yeah. Why did you kill the debt fix plan? The fixed plan we killed because it just, it was just unit economics. We were not really, I think, I'm trying to think about what the reason was. The major reason was probably just the fact that those users were not profitable for us mm-hmm. from a business standpoint. Yeah, that didn't make sense. Now what, we, happening. now, what we did do was we grandfathered the existing guys in for, I want to say, for a good amount of time, right? It's not like we just, stopped it. But as far as acquiring new customers, nothing that happened actually was from 2012 
to 2016, a lot of other brokerages started. And many of them were offering monthly plans and things like that. Price cheaper than 1947. So we were like, okay, at a certain point in time, it just becomes easier to have one pricing plan, right? Versus throwing two, three different options at the user. So that was a strategic decision that we took. What were like the differentiations you built to stand apart from the competitors? One is, of course, customer service. You also told me about like allowing users to upload their own algorithms and stuff like that. How does that work? Like, you, you write an algorithm using Python or something and then you upload it or? Yeah, so definitely the API, the retail API was one differentiating factor. One of the major things that we did was Eadhar, right? Upstocks was the first company in India to allow for Eadhar, which really shaved off account opening times. Of course, other brokers followed suit, but that's one of the things that my, my Upstocks co-founder was always super proud of, that the fact that Upstocks was number one. So technology does solve a lot of those pain points, right? If you think about just over a span of a few years, the requirement of filling out literally 30 pages of documents. And it's not like just a couple of signatures here and there. It's like almost like 40 lines. Everything has to be perfectly submitted. Yeah. And also there, so you're asking me, what are the different operations that happen in a brokerage? One of the major things that we had was actually, it's called a maker checker, right? So you have one person checking all the, and then another person has to check the first person's work, right? So it's all manual work, but EADHAR changed everything because now you can basically just submit an account opening form online, right? So that's one way we could differentiate ourselves. Yeah, the retail API was, Upstocks was actually, I think maybe the first or one of the first retail brokers to offer an API, right? So the idea there is that if you know how to code, then you should be able to build an algorithm which trades using a rules-based process. And then that algo should be able to trade the markets without any sort of third-party kind of peeking in and be like, hey, what's going on here? That's the basic idea. And one of the reasons this was allowed is because it was actually permissible by the exchanges and by SEBI, right? So certain rule changes came through. You didn't have to get algos approved. And the reason you didn't have to get algos approved was because the broker's API was approved, right? That was the game-changing element. Before, you had to build algos and then go to the exchange because there was no such thing as a retail API. But now, the actual broker's APIs, whether it's Upstocks or even Zerodha or other brokers, the APIs themselves are approved by the exchange, right? So now the broker can offer that to the user and the user can do whatever they want to do. They can code in Python, C++. I'm not exactly sure what languages are supported. And now there's documentation for that. Even that's come a long way, right? Like when the API was first launched by Upstocks, very few people were using it because it was cumbersome. They didn't really know how to use it. But then that's a bet that the company takes, right? The idea is over time, it'll become easier and easier because one of the major issues with Algo trading is that things can go wrong very quickly, right? So you need to make sure that whatever systems you're using are like accurate and they're not going to fail on you. But nowadays you can basically, most brokers in India, including a lot of the full service brokers have actually opened up their APIs. So it's actually really cool. And I talk about this all the time. Sometimes in India, we tend to oftentimes compare to the US in terms of 
just investor participation rates or even like algo trading, right? If you were to ask the average algo trader in India and be like, hey, how do you think the algo trading community in India compares to the one in the US? Oftentimes they'll say, oh, in the US, it's way more advanced, right? It's because it, it's been around longer, which is true. It has been around longer, but there's actually a lot more retail traders building their own models in India than any wow. country in the world. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. And this is evidenced on like Twitter, on Quora. You'll see like a massive amount of traders like excitedly talking about building algos. And so that's one of the reasons I actually run the Trading Rooms podcast is because there's so many traders doing this in India. And this does not exist in the US at the same level, at the retail level. Now, in the US, a lot of prop desks and hedge funds do use algos, obviously. But that's at the institutional level. So even at the broker level, I cannot build fully automated algorithms on Robinhood. I cannot do it even on E-Trade, I believe. Like most of the brokers don't even. So it's really interesting how India is really ahead of the curve over there. Amazing. Okay. I was not aware of this. So yeah, uh, people don't. Were, were you around when the Tiger Global Route happened? 2019? Yeah. Uh, so that's like right around that time where basically I had started stepping down from the company's operations, but I was involved, right? And basically there, the idea was the company was growing very quickly and Tiger was also very involved in the Indian space and they decided to double down, right? On, on the management, on the company's vision. And it's really the India thesis, right? The fact that even now, less than 4% of the population has a DMAT account, right? When you just think about that, it's just mind boggling, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What's a comparable number for the U.S.? Yeah. So in the U.S. is closer to 40%. Now, that's biased because you have a lot of people putting their money into 401ks where they're getting exposure to stocks, right? But even if you discount that, it's still like probably up to between a 5 to 10x difference. Easy. So a big reason for that is just awareness plus but it's not just awareness because awareness is a very lazy term. It's also the actual perception of the markets, right? Seeing things for how they actually are. And so that's changing now in India, right? Like people are becoming more and more aware of the fact that stock markets exist and they're getting exposed to it at a younger, younger age. I was exposed to stocks in high school, right? Yeah. So like I had a teacher who literally, I share this story all the time. She was a microeconomics teacher, right? This was my sophomore year in high school. Uh, On the first day of class, grade 10? Grade 10, yeah. So I was 15 years old, right? On the first day of class, she asks everyone to build a portfolio of stocks, right? A mock portfolio with the idea being the student with the best performing portfolio at the end of the year gets an A in the class. So everyone picked portfolios consisting of stocks like whatever, I, Apple, IBM, Microsoft, all the usual suspects. I knew about penny stocks because my brother had traded penny stocks when he was in high school. Okay. And so I asked the teacher, hey, can I build a portfolio of penny stocks? And she's sure, why not? And I did that. And of course, penny stocks, they can go either way. They're very volatile. But the idea is you have to come in first place to win, right? Otherwise, there's nothing to lose. And I ended up winning the competition. So 
basically that was my introduction to stocks and that happened in high school, right? So that, so people get introduced to stocks at a younger age, but that's also changing now in India and with trading leagues, that's just, that's one of the pain points we're trying to solve with that as well. We hope you enjoyed listening to part one of this two part episode. Just search for Founder Thesis on any audio streaming app for part two of this amazing conversation.